Welcome to One Test Wonders and the stories of players who were picked to play for their country just once. In this episode, we chat with opening batsman Alan Butcher. Alan had a decorated first-class career with more than 22,000 runs for Surrey and Glamorgan before going on to a successful coaching career, including with Zimbabwe. He's also the father of former England batsman Mark and Gary, who, like his dad, played for both Glamorgan and Surrey. Alan's opportunity to play for England in Test cricket came at his then home ground, the Oval, in the final match of a four-game series against India in 1979. England were 1-0 up and made changes, looking at new players ahead of a winter tour of Australia and India. Let's hear what he had to say when I caught up with him. First of all then, I gather that you could have played for Australia because you spent some time down there. Um, Just talk to us about that if you could to start with, because I guess it could have been oh, oh so different and you could have pulled on an Australian jumper. It could have, but I think my mother wouldn't have allowed that. So, which is why we came back. Um, yeah, we we were um, family emigrated in 1965. Uh, so we were £10 poms. Um, you know, you used to have that system whereby you could go to Australia for £10, like assisted passage if you had to stay there for two years. Then. And we, we stayed there for five years. And then for varying reasons, we, we came back. But during... During that time, I played for South Australia under 15s and in a in a interstate carnival, and was picked for an Australian under 15 team from that from that carnival. There were people in that South Australian set. David Hooks played in that team. The, the late David Hooks, sadly, so played with him. There were a couple of others around the, the other states who went on to play for Australia. So. Could have happened. You never know. Might have played once for Australia. <laughs> well, there've been, there've been a few. Uh, there've been a few who've done that, of course. Stuart Law, who yeah. I know you know very well, um, being one of them. But in the in the lead up to your selection in in 1979 for the uh, the Test match at the Oval, were you actually surprised to get the call? I I think my name had been bandied about a bit in the press. I'd probably had my most consistent season to date so I guess I was aware that there was a chance that it might happen but in a way yes I was surprised but but it came about I think because Wayne Larkins broke a finger because I think Wayne was going to play he'd been earmarked ahead of me and I came in once when he broke a finger which is where I I was always pretty certain that when it came to the winter tour, though obviously I'd love to have gone to Australia, I knew I'd have to do something special because I think Wayne was sort of penciled into that to that trip, and I didn't do anything special. How did you find out you'd been picked? Because of course, um, in those days, it was a very, very different uh, method of notification to uh, to now, wasn't yes. it? Yes. Yeah. Well, I actually found out at Chelmsford on the Saturday evening because Mickey Stewart told me. So obviously the selectors have been in touch with him and he took me aside and told me. I don't know, I don't know whether that, that was a normal practice for coaches, although to be fair that there weren't that many coaches of Mickey Stewart's type about at that stage. You know, he was probably the first of the 
cricket managers, wasn't he? I was going to say my recollection is of uh, of of that time. Players often having to tune into uh, to Radio Four yeah, on, yeah, well, on a Sunday lunchtime was, to find out if they've been selected. Yeah, or not. exactly. I was I was just about to say that the yeah you hear so many players say that you found out on the radio at Sunday lunchtime that it couldn't have been the case that um, many coaches or captains passed on the information. So it was. It was just Mickey wasn't going to be in control of things, I think. That's what it was. And, and of course, you, you were actually, at the end of that day's play, the Saturday night at Chelmsford, you, you were actually not out um, in a championship match. And then, of course, you had to go and play a Sunday league match uh, at the Oval the following day against uh, Northamptonshire, then back to Chelmsford for uh, two more days of uh, first-class cricket before the Test match. How, how easy was it for you to get your head around um, the, the idea that you'd be involved in a Test match uh, while you're still playing those uh, those first-class and, indeed, the, the Sunday League match? The good thing, in a way, was that I didn't have that long to dwell on it because uh, I think my, my then sister-in-law was, was throwing a party on the Saturday night. So, so I can't remember. Well, so, you know, it was a, a family family party, so... Uh, you know, we just having fun there. I can remember looking back, you sort of jog my memory, and uh, who did I tell first? And of course, in those days with no mobile phones, it was it wasn't so easy. So yeah, you know, you had to wait till you get home, or um, you know, before you could phone, because I think there might have been a public phone box in the dressing room. But, you know sometimes not easy to use so the whole communication thing was obviously so much different um yeah i can remember feeling really really happy obviously and, and um, looking forward to it so you you go back to you go back to london from chelmsford on the tuesday night well maybe you are quite sanguine about these things but i'm assuming nerves have started to hit in at this stage have they well i think yes i i'm normally reasonably calm but you know, you know, it's it's a big thing in your life, and, and so I, I'd be lying if I think in that if I said I, you know, it wasn't starting to think. Okay, wonder how things were going to go. But um, I'm just trying to think because I de- I didn't drive then. I used to go up to the Oval on the bus, so I must have gone up up on the bus. I stayed in London because <laughs> that was it. I decided to stay at the team hotel to. Um, um, you know, be part of the team, but didn't see anybody the whole time. Was <laughs> there, so, so I might as well have come come home. In fact, I did because uh, on the Sunday, because Sunday was still a rest day at that stage. I found out that David Bairster, who was also making his debut, was feeling equally alone. So I suggested he came back with me and. You know, to have Sunday lunch, so we we went back to my place, which wasn't that far from the Oval, and um, for Sunday lunch, even that didn't go so well because Gary, my younger son, decided it was out on his bike, did a wheelie, and fell off the back and cracked his skull. So so I had to take him to the <laughs> to the to the A and E. So I spent quite a lot of the time in the hospital looking after him. So yeah. It was uh, it was interesting. Well, we'll come we'll come to that in a little bit more detail in, in a while. But um, first of all, in terms of the Wednesday, the day yeah. before the Test match. Now, of course, again, very different setup in those days, wasn't it? Because you'd finished that Championship match on the Tuesday night, 
And then, yeah. of course, uh, back to London on the Tuesday night for, for practice on the Wednesday. What sort of practice was it in those days? I mean, it was a fairly low-key practice, a warm-up with like Bernard Thomas. You know, had the, he, he started the sort of warm-up practice, so they were warm-ups. I think I did have a net, and, and that was, and I probably only did that out of thinking I ought to, because it wasn't necessarily a normal thing for, especially at that time of year, August, because by that time of the year, the nets at the Oval were pretty rubbish. They weren't that great all the way through. (laughs) But nets around the county grounds were very few and far between, sort of on the morning of a match. It's not like now where, you know, you have to have a net available, or, or at least one net available. And it's generally of a better quality. In those days, it wasn't wasn't the norm. So, you know, you, you, your practice really was just a knockout on the outfield. You know, they weren't great, so it wasn't something that you'd rush down there because very often felt that it wasn't great practice anyway. So, but I think I did, which is not a good way to go about things, really, because you should just do what you think you should do. But sometimes it's not that easy, is it? You, you know, you got you know you've got people looking at you, and you want to. You want to give a good impression. So I think I did. I'm pretty sure I had a net. But as I said, it wouldn't have been it wouldn't have been a sort of part of, of my routine because because it just wasn't. Well these days you have coaches, specialist coaches, team managers, all sorts of people to have a chat with you, brief you, give you your kit tell you what's expected of you, probably where you're going to be fielding, perhaps send you some video analysis of um, of the various bowlers you're going to face. What was the equivalent back then in 1979? We had a team meal and a bit of a chat. When I speak about this and when I think about it, I can't remember being told formally that I was actually playing. And I, and I think I was probably naive in the way I looked at there were There were 12 names. I probably just wasn't going to assume that I was playing. Maybe I maybe I should have worked out. Maybe I shouldn't have needed to be told, but I, I would have thought somewhere along the line, <laughs> just just say, yeah, you're definitely playing. And because Gucci had opened before, I wasn't sure whether I was opening either. It was fair, it was very loose basically at that stage. That wasn't a real formal thing. So, but having said that, I was really looking forward to sort of playing under Mike Brearley because I. I knew his reputation, played against him as captain of Middlesex quite a lot. I liked the look of how he went about things. So I was looking forward to that. So, But there was obviously the core of the team had been together for quite a while. So there was a way of them doing things. And I think perhaps at that time, there probably wasn't a great mechanism for getting people from outside the group sort of integrated all that well. Yes, I was going to ask about that. As you say, uh, the group would have been together for quite some time. They toured Australia the previous uh, the previous winter, the majority of the players. But there were a few changes for that last test, weren't there? Because I, I guess in those days, and again, people people in the modern era wouldn't necessarily understand it, but the oval test was was quite often seen as a little bit of a proving ground um, for people ahead of the winter tours uh, in the same way that the knockout final was as well, uh, uh, Lords later yeah. on. The, the changes were, of course, you came in for Derek Randall, uh, David Bearstow came in for, for Bob Taylor, and Peter Willey came in for uh, for Jeff Miller. So 
from that point of view, at least, um, there, there were a few different faces or new faces around, so you weren't you weren't on your own in that regard. Yeah, and as I said, obviously I wasn't the only one who was feeling that way because Bluey, I, I found out, was <laughs> feeling equally left on his own, and so I took him home. Peter Willie, I didn't know Peter quite so well, and he wasn't quite as gregarious a character as David Burstow, so he, maybe he was he, he was quite happy doing whatever he was doing. I can only assume so because I didn't hear otherwise. In terms of the Indian, uh, the, the Indian contingent, had you actually seen much of the Test series up to that point? Obviously, there was Kapil Dev, who was relatively new on the scene. Carson <coughs> Garvey, the left arm seamer. There was Venkat. There was Beatty. Um, had, had you had an opportunity to see much of it, or, or was it simply a case it was on in on in the corner of the dressing room uh, during the summer, and, you, and you'd catch it when you could? Yeah, basically. And if you know, if we had a day off, I used to enjoy it. I like watching, but you know, analysis and opportunity to 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 look at video footage was um, apart from on the TV was pretty much non-existent. So, um, you know, not like today when you've got instant video available of all bowlers and slow-mos and all sorts of you know, ways of analysing and, and, and stuff. So, yeah, it was it was much uh, much more um, suck it and see, really. <laughs> Just, yeah, I wondered how. I mean, I, obviously the spinners have been around for quite a while. I might have played against Bish when he was at North Ants. But, but I, yeah, but... Pretty much only just seen them on TV and then go out and play. Now, I have to say, I became a decent player of spinners, but I wasn't a particularly good player of spin then. So, sort of hard. It was just a different way of playing. I was more confident in my ability against quick bowlers. But you, you got to learn, you got to adapt, and you got to get better. You mentioned the team meeting uh, and the hotel. I mean, logistically, <laughs> here's a question for you. You, you. You've also spoken of the fact that you used to travel around on the bus in in those days. So was it one of those situations in those days when you took your kit to the hotel and, and then um, there, there was a kit? No, I think we went, we went to the Oval first and then, then on to the hotel. To be honest, I, I'm trying to think how how that would have worked. I really can't remember. Whether I dropped my kit off, whether I whether I got a lift up, whether I carried all my kit to the oval on the bus, or got a, I, you know, it's an amazing I thought. It's an amazing thought now when you look back, isn't it? Yeah, yeah it is. Yeah, the man on the Clapham omnibus, <laughs> but um, the one oh nine from Croydon to. Uh, to the Oval. In terms of the team, you've mentioned, obviously, you you befriended David Bairstow on the rest day. But at the practice session, the the, the team meal, the, the morning of the, the first morning of the test match, was was there anyone who, who really came up to you and sort of put their arm around you and, and, and said, good luck or, or anything like that? Or was it just I, um, get on with yeah, it? Yeah, most people... Yeah, you know, wish me luck. And um, in fact, Mike really wrote in in his book, The Art of Captaincy, that he um, he, he he got bikes to to chat to me, and um, he actually said he, he he thought that that was a mistake because he, I think his words were that boycott had frozen me further into my new boy nervousness, um, which, to be honest, I can't remember that being the case. To be honest. Now, I, I found he was quite welcoming. At breakfast the next day, he shared his muesli and fruit salad with me, which is what I always have for breakfast. So I, 
I didn't feel that Briz got that quite right. Because of the way I played, he may have decided that uh, that was the outcome. But I don't think so. You know, I, I lost my mother back in April. But whenever I, I used to go and see her at her house, she had a picture of me batting. And it was just before lunch. It would have been just before I got out. It's a sort of archetypal picture from the old stand in front of the Archbishop Tennyson School across the ground. You got the old school board gasometer, you know, the sort of typical, typical old oval picture. And, I can remember walking in and out, and I'd see this picture every time, and it's got me up there, 14 not out, off 30 overs. <laughs> and like, I was embarrassed every time I walked past it. In fact, I told my mum, I said, this it, it, it tells me one or two things. He said, either, either you love me unconditionally, or you're a very cruel woman indeed. <laughs> <laughs> but... Uh, and I, I, I've, I've taken that picture off the wall. I've, I, I will bring it home. They ought to have it. But I, spe- that, I guess the standout thing for me was I can't remember being told that I was going to open the batting. And, and, and it was about 10 past 11, uh, one of the, the player two seats along from me said, well, you're pretty relaxed. And I said, well... Yeah, then I said, I don't know where I'm at. He said, well, you're opening. Said, oh, okay. Then I, and it's half 11 start. So, I, you know, again, I am normally fed relaxed. So it didn't really phase me that much. Uh, so I got ready. Then the five-minute bell went. So I walked out to the door that led out to the ground. So I just wandered out there. I was just looking at the crowd outside and what have you. And Alec Bedser beckoned me over, pulled me into a corner and said, don't do anything bloody stupid, will you? Which I thought was a nice piece of man management. You know, as if, thanks, you know. Obviously full of confidence in what I was about to, to go and do. So that may have had some bearing on how I, how I approached it and scored uncharacteristically slowly. Um, having said that, Mickey, Mickey Stewart afterwards, after the test match, said he, he watched the whole of the first session. And he, he said... Normally, say, if I'd batted a whole session in a county game, I reckon to be 60, 60, 70, probably, if I was playing well. Mickey said the way they bowled, which they they bowled a good length, but it was generally either wide of off stump or down leg side, he reckoned that I probably wouldn't have got more than 35, 40 in a county game under those circumstances. And in a county game, I would have thrown the bat that, some of the wide ones outside off stump, without question. But I didn't want to nick off in my first test match doing that, you know. So I just kept, I kept leaving it, leaving it, and then, and then it would be leg straight and I'd block it. So there were a lot of dot balls, and um, I was starting to feel comfortable and, and feeling okay. Yeah, I've got the hang of this. And then it was 20 minutes before lunch, and thinking, okay, well, let's just get through this bit now, and then afternoon session will be all right. But unfortunately, Nick won to short leg, and uh, that was the end of that. And of course, throughout throughout your time at the crease, you had Geoffrey Boycott at the other end. What was, what was it like batting with him? I think, well, there were two things probably struck me in that the pitches at the Oval were flat, flat, and he'd walk up and Keppel Dev would run up and he might and make one sort of move about that much, you know. 
and Bollocks had walked down the, and he said, hey, that went like a firecracker. And I went, what? Okay, you know, so, so it was that thing. He did make it look difficult. There's no doubt about that. Great player. I mean, don't get me wrong. I, and I really admired how he played and his concentration and whatever. Great technique. But he made it. was hard work for him. And the other thing was, I can remember getting one. I think I might have gone down the wicket to Betty and got it sort of just wide of mid-on and called for a single. And uh, Boyk sent me back. And um, at the end of the over, he came and he said, uh, he said I, don't, I don't trust you running yet. He said. So which, again, I thought, mm, yeah, OK. <laughs> Coming from you, that's uh, that's rich. But to be fair, I things and stories about Boyks. He's always been very good to me. Actually, he's he's been very supportive and um, said nice things about me. And so I, I you know, you speak as you find. It wasn't easy, say, to back with him because he wasn't really looking to take my runs. But he didn't make it feel like a daunting prospect batting with the great Jeffrey Boycott. I did feel that I felt more comfortable in the second innings. I was much more prepared to play some shots and then play one too many. Normal left-handers flash outside the off stump and caught a slip. When, when you were out in the middle, did you notice any difference in the, the, the intensity of the cricket compared to, to what you were used to playing county cricket? I can't say I did, really. The pace of it was probably it was slower. Obviously, you're aware of the crowd because there's more of a just regardless of any, there's just hum that you you didn't get in a county match because there are just fewer people there. Um, there would have been more county attacks with more pace with all the quick bowlers about in county cricket at that stage. India were not probably one of the better fielding sides at that time. It was not really their forte, so they you know wasn't. They didn't really put you under a great deal of pressure from that point of view, or make a lot of noise in those days. So I didn't, I didn't, I didn't really notice, you know, more more of the any intensity or pressure was probably came from yourself, you know, just knowing that what it could mean for for the rest of your career, and, and then conceivably for the rest of your life, and the the scrutiny from outside, you know, um, that. That probably was the thing that was more intense than than the actual cricket. You hit one boundary in the innings. Do you remember it? <laughs> no. No. I was wondering if it was going to be one of those square cuts you played so well. I, well, there's a likelihood, because they, they, if they got it short enough, because they did bowl wide enough. So it's, there's a likelihood. Um, and I know I can remember in the second innings playing a couple of... As, uh, Boyks described them, my back foot wallops, maybe a couple of those in a pull shot, I think, of Keppel Death. I played a lot more freely in the second innings until I got out. But honestly, I really can't remember very much about my first innings, apart from just finding that I couldn't score um, for whatever reason. <laughs> Some nerves. The, the chat just before walking out probably didn't help. With the benefit of 40 years now, um, how do you reflect on on, on your dismissal and uh, and the innings as a whole? Is it, is it something that, that frustrates you looking back or or just one of those things, really, a part of the natural I, process of yeah, growth? I think, I think that, really. 
I'm not the first. I won't be the last who, you know, finds the first game or first innings, first the introduction into Test cricket a bit of a trial. It's a different, a difficult mental breakthrough. Some great players of the game, if you think of Steve Waugh, people who, you know, took 20 odd Test matches before getting the 100 or 20 odd innings, whatever. I can't remember, but. You know, some great players have, have found the, the the beginnings of their Test career very difficult. Um, but my, I guess the thing I look back on with frustration is I would like to know whether I was good enough to do it or not. And if, if say, I played five or six Test matches and patently struggled, then I could say, OK, well... I've been given enough opportunities. I, I, I'm probably not good enough, or I might have been. Uh, I'd have got some runs and, and and been away. So that that's the main frustration, just not knowing whether I was would have been good enough to be an England player. I, I sort of make a distinction between someone. In my head, it's like I played for England, but. I don't really regard myself as an England player because I, I didn't nail a place in the team for a period of time. So, you know, for me, there's a distinction in that. And having been dismissed in that first innings, what sort of watcher are you of cricket in that regard? I didn't normally throw things around. I was normally fairly quiet, kind of sit down, a few resigned sighs, and then I could watch. In a county game over a long season, I, I'd probably... I probably would have slept a bit, but, um, I, I, you know, again, that's something that maybe might have done when uh, you're a bit more comfortable in the team. I would have, I would have watched, and I, I, generally, I generally did watch. What was it like sharing a dressing room with Ian Botham in his pomp? Because uh, that, that, really was, uh, <laughs> that, that really was a time when, when he, he could do no wrong, really. In fact, in mm. that test match on that first day... To get off the mark, he went past a thousand Test match runs. He was very different in that I can't remember him watching much, <laughs> and uh, there was always something. You know, he was about getting involved in something, doing this, that, the other, and, and what have you. Um, yeah, had a, a lot of energy and a, sort of a, a big personality within within the dressing room. What, one of the things that do stand out was a lot of the the five days, what especially obviously while we were batting, was taken up with a lot of discussion about payments for the Australian tour. So there was a lot of money talk. And I can't remember who it was, but somebody came to me at some stage and said, this is probably tough for you, I, I, I imagine, because... You'd swim there if you if you could, and, you know. So it, it was right. So it was in a way that took a bit of the edge off things for me. And I know it's a it's something that it's important for players and became more and more important. It was another thing that sort of made me feel a little bit on the outside of it because I had never I didn't I couldn't get involved in that because I I just wanted to get on the plane. I didn't care how much I got paid or whatever. Naive and whatever. But you know, at some stage you at, at the start of your career that's what it's like, you know. It's maybe later when you 
when you feel a bit more comfortable in it, perhaps, and understand your worth perhaps a little better, uh, I probably would have been happy to be engaged in those conversations. But it wasn't something that was of great importance to me at that time in my, my career. And when the time came to, to take the field for the first time uh, as part of the fielding unit, had anyone spoken to you about where you generally like to field, if you had a specialist fielding position? And uh, if so, were you, were you allowed to go there? In that lot, my position, and I can't even remember if I fielded there, to be honest, but I used to field short leg to the spinner, well, to the quick bowlers as well at the oval. So, so there I would have maybe fielded in the gully. So it would have been short leg or anywhere else that there wasn't a position to field those suppose. It wasn't a case of, you know, the old somebody, the new boy going to short leg. If I, if I fielded that, I would have actually, I, I did it out of choice at the over because I enjoyed doing it, stupidly. When you were in the field that first time, when, uh, uh, when would your mind have started to, to move towards the second innings? Oh, normally, you know, sort of when they're eight, nine down, certainly nine down. But you're looking at the clock then and thinking, well, and, and you know, the old openness thing about you don't want to get that last wicket more than 10 minutes out or nine minutes out from an interval or the end of the day's play because you don't want to have to strap your pads on for, for an over or two. So I can't, I can't remember the situation, but yeah, when they're... Eight down, you probably start thinking, okay, well, it might not be. It could only be two balls or ten minutes, and then nine down. Then you're starting to get yourself a bit prepared, so mentally, anyway. And so do, do, that, do you remember being more nervous or less nervous in the second innings than the first? I innings? think I was less. I was less nervous, and I, I, I felt. I think I'd probably just reason to myself. I just, just go out and play the way I would normally play. That's what had got me picked. So I think that's also one of the, that's always one of the problems about for for players when you start being talked about as a possible England player, certainly for the next test or the one after or whatever. The the danger is then that you start or you stop playing the way that had got you noticed and start playing how you think that the selectors might want you to play. And, and, you know, that you, I'm, I'm certain. I think that that happened to me because I, I, my, my form had tailed off leading into the Test match. I think I allowed myself into that thinking. I think other players admit to it too. Um, you know, they're very, in, in almost all things, the trick is to just, as my old opening partner, Graham Clinton, used to say to, when he was coaching, always do what you always do do. Could you allow yourself just to focus on that second innings or was it impossible, particularly given the chat in the dressing room that you've mentioned already, not to think about the plane to Australia? I knew that I had to do something really special because, I, I again, you know, as I said, I, I had a fair idea that Wayne Larkins was already earmarked for the trip. Um, and, I, and I thought that my, my best chance of doing something really special was to just play my normal way and and see what that brought me. So I don't, I don't think that thinking about the winter really came into into my thinking when I approached the second innings. I think it was just come on, just show people 
how you really play. And, and what um, are your recollections of that second innings? I just being much more free, playing more shots, taking on some of the wider balls. And I, again, I was fit, I was feeling good, but played a poor shot. Try you know tried to score off a short ball from the left hander that was too close to me and nicked it. But I was to get out like that quite a lot in the rest of my career, so it wasn't uh, wasn't unusual. But I did get a lot of runs from it as well. In terms of your performances in the Test match, I, I'm assuming one of your frustrations is that you actually got in on both occasions and then uh, and then didn't actually go on with the job, so to speak. Mm, that's. Uh... Yeah, it's one of the cardinal sins of batting, isn't it? And 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 I also think that it was something I learned to do much better as I got older. Yeah, you're right. It was just um, I got out once through being too careful, and the other time from not being careful enough. You know, so there's that balance, and it's the reason I didn't go to Australia. So, and. You know, if I'm honest, well, the reason probably why I didn't play again because for too long after that, I could have periods where I could play as well as anybody in the country but and score as many runs, but I had periods where I kept getting 16. 16 was my sort of bogey number, somewhere around there, that I'd start to think I'm in. And I, and I learnt later to sort of to not, even think about whether I'm in and, and just keep playing ball by ball. You know, it's, it's, so you were a scoreboard watcher then? I know some players uh, yeah. managed, to, managed to avoid yeah, looking I, at the scoreboard. I wouldn't, I wouldn't have said that I was, but but I did know that, having said that, probably I didn't work it out until afterwards, that there could only be one explanation, that when I got to that, I batted for... A particular length of time was feeling okay. Looked at the scoreboard, happened to have you know 16 or thereabouts. It's not, it wasn't always 16, and then probably subconsciously said to myself, "Okay, I'm in now, and I can." And and I learnt not to do that. Whether I was looking at the scoreboard or not, it it wasn't the visual thing. It was what that translated into my head, and I learnt to stop that thinking and just continue playing ball after ball after ball. How frustrating was it to put your batting gear away on uh, on the third morning of uh, of a test match, knowing that tests obviously run for five days? It it must have been well beyond frustrating, I guess. Yeah, I was probably more annoyed in the second getting out in the second innings because I knew that I was playing okay and and I was comfortable and there was no reason why I wouldn't have been able to go on and get a reasonable score. Although, yeah, I was disappointed I put my batting gear away. It turned into quite a decent test match. So it was quite, um, there wasn't a lack of interest for the next couple of days. Certainly the next, you know, the sort of latter part of the fourth day and then and then the whole of the fifth day because of how well Gavaskar played and how close India got and probably should have, should have won it. I reckon that, Situation at tea time, I reckon half the teams in the county championship would have won from there. But they panicked, changed the batting order, panicked, came out slugging. They didn't need much more than about five and over. But five and over, six and over in those days was was a lot. You know, people didn't think you could score at six and over in those days, particularly in Test cricket. Before we talk in detail about that that particular section, you've mentioned already about the rest day. 
Give us a little bit more detail about uh, about the rest day. So you you you'll wake up in uh, you wake up in the hotel uh, on the Sunday morning, and all of a sudden there's no Sunday league game to play. You've you've got a day to yourself. Just uh, let let us know how you spent it. Yeah, well, I think I must have spoken to Bluey on the Saturday. Maybe he'd asked me what you know we've been doing, and I said, well, not a lot. I mean. I remember taking Kentucky Fried Chicken back to my hotel room because there was nobody else about. So I said, I've had enough of that. And he just said, yeah, I'm, I'm in the same boat. So, you know, we've been mates for, for some time. So I come back and uh, have Sunday lunch. So um, so we went back to, where was I living? South Norwood at the time. Sunday lunch, a couple of beers, a bottle of wine. But then, as I say, my youngest son, then went out on his bike and was doing wheelies on his bike and fell off, cracked his head on the pavement and uh, had to take him off to A&E to have have an x-ray. So that sort of curtailed the whatever afternoon's entertainment was going to take place. Most of it was spent, I can't remember what hospital, probably um, probably crying, Mayday, probably Mayday Hospital. Thornton Heath, I should imagine. It'd be quite yeah. incredible for people to, to think now, actually, because uh, players these days, they uh, they go out in the evenings, uh, uh, pandemic permitting, of course, to have meals or, or they'll all gather in the team room and have something to eat or, or whatever <laughs> it may be. But it, it's quite astonishing now to look back and, and think that people were operating in that little silo. Yeah, I mean, not everyone was because we were hearing about what players had done the night before in the dressing room so it wasn't um, you know there were groups there were people who were who were out and about in my case it may have been that people thought well because it's a home test I was staying at home but Bluey wouldn't have been doing that can't say that you felt that included in in what was what was going on at the time unfortunately moving on to that fourth day England batted on for a lead of 437 I remember there was quite a bit of criticism at the time, actually, that England had batted uh, batted far too long. Was there any semblance of a thought that India could get close to whatever target you'd set? I think probably not. Although everyone was thinking it was a, it was still a good pitch, you know, and they, and they had one or two handy players. So well, this, this was a side, the Indian side, of course, that had topped four hundred. What three years previously against the West Indies in I think yeah. it was Port of Spain? So they knew they knew what they were doing in terms of run chases oh, of that magnitude. Yeah, yeah. even so, four thirty-seven is a hell of a lot of runs to get, isn't it? So I think that it was a question of being a bit on the a bit on the cautious side, probably thinking that they weren't really going to threaten that. But of course, Gavaskar played magnificently. What two hundred and twenty? He got. I can remember in the outfield on the uh, on the final day, and it was tense. And at tea time, as I said, they they were in the box seat. They really should have won from there at tea time. But as I said, I think they changed their order instead of carrying on playing, but with just a bit, maybe a bit more aggression. Played, you know, had a few slogs. I think Kapil Dev came out and slogged and lost wickets where they, you know, they really they just needed to keep playing and wait till take it down a bit. A bit closer to the end because I don't. I'm pretty sure that the scoring rate wasn't beyond their reach with with the ability they had and wickets in hand. You know they still had 
plenty of wickets in hand at tea time, I think. I suppose an indication of the desperation at least felt by Mike Brealey was he threw the ball to you at one stage <laughs> on the last day. <laughs> yeah, I think, I, I, I think that was quite early on, though. I think that was more, you know, just... I don't know. I don't. I don't really know what he was thinking. But I, I'm not saying in the first couple of hours. But I don't think it was as a, it was more of a breakup thing, just to try something different rather than complete desperation. Because <laughs> it would have been. I mean, it, it was a bloody good day's cricket. The last day it was a, it was an excellent day's cricket. And I all I can remember was because I think we played Hampshire. I think the following day at the Oval, and I was mentally exhausted i could hardly put one foot in front of the other you know there was the personal tension of um, you know the day test match plus the last day and a half intensity in front of a big crowd and with india playing so well for the first time i i just asked i think it must have been roger knight i couldn't i said just for the first session just put me down at final leg or something because i'm i'm so tired i can't think it was okay after a while but you know to begin with i was just mentally shot do you ever think you'd lose the test match oh yes uh, coming up to tea time i really thought that we we were in danger of losing it because they were, they were couldn't they couldn't get a wicket they were scoring decent rate i thought there was every chance we might so yeah it was a relief at the end of it in terms of when the match did come to an end did anyone come up to you and just pat you on the back and say well done or see you in australia (laughs) (laughs) anyone said that oh um do you know what brian i i I can't remember i think there was a lot you know it was just a question of you know relief that we got away with not losing it because of course you won the series as a result of that yeah and had won the series yeah you know, it would have been that would have been a you know a huge defeat to to um, for them to knock off four hundred and thirty. Well, I can't remember how many they got. How many did they get to in the end? They got four twenty nine for eight, having been at one stage three hundred and sixty six for one. Exactly. Yeah, you get you know if you get that close, you really probably ought to have won it. So there was a lot of, lot of relief and uh, uh, and the fact that they had you know we had won the series. Did you collect any mementos or, or memorabilia from the match or a scorecard? Um, did you get any autographs or, or just do you still even have the old Slazinger bat? Uh, I don't really do that kind of thing. I'm not really that uh, into that. I think I do have a scorecard somewhere. I couldn't put my finger on it, but I do, I do every now and then I sort of come, come across it. But beyond the Cornhill medal that we all got, I haven't got. A lot. I've got, I've got sweater and cap are outside in a suitcase somewhere. But you've still got the Cornhill medal then? I think, yeah, that, that's about. It was in my glass cabinet, but I think we, we had a bit of a clear out. So, but it's, uh, I still have it. I still have it. How do you reflect now on, on that first experience of Test cricket at the time of the match? And, and how do you reflect on it now? I wish I'd enjoyed it more, I would say. You know, for a host of reasons. A, it would have been great if I'd scored more runs to start with. But as a general thing, I wish I'd like to have felt more part of the team. But I guess that that sort of comes from playing more regularly. From what I gather, I think that those things are probably dealt with slightly better nowadays, it seems. From what I hear, might not be the case. I don't know. And did it affect you in the last few weeks of the season? You, you've mentioned already about how exhausted mentally you felt after the Test match. 
I think that was only for that, for a day session, you know, half a day, just sort of what I got into the other game, I think, the next game for Surrey, I think I was okay. I was much more, I was very disappointed at the end of the next season not to be picked to go to the West Indies because I'd got nearly 1,700 runs or something. And missing out on that was, I think, much more of a disappointment and possibly, I don't know, that may have had a bigger effect on me than anything that happened in the in, in the test match. And then after, after that, yeah, I probably didn't play consistently well enough. I know at times I played very, very well, but not consistently well enough over a whole season, probably, to warrant selection and until I went to Glamorgan, probably, and then became much more consistent there. Wayne Larkins was picked for the tour of Australia that followed. He had played in the 1979 World Cup, of course, including the final. You've mentioned already that you felt you got the opportunity because Wayne had suffered um, a hand injury during that 1979 season. Was it still a shock not to be on the plane? No, I, I, I knew I hadn't done enough. You know, I, I went into the test match knowing, in my own mind, and no one had to tell me that I had to do something fairly special to get on the plane. So I wasn't, I wasn't naive in that in that respect. Um, so I wasn't surprised. You're always disappointed, but I wasn't overly disappointed because I wasn't expecting it to happen. Were you told whether you'd be on standby, or were you, were you told to keep I, it ready? I, I, I don't think so. I can't remember that happening. You know, whether anybody was put on standby in those days. It may have just been, unless other people were, and, and I didn't know. But I can't remember being, you know, being formally told that keep yourself in Nick or practice. How close did you feel to the England side thereafter? Because uh, you, you were actually 12th man, I think, for the Lords Test match against the West Indies uh, the, the following summer. That was just because Surrey didn't have a game. I wasn't in the 12, but they needed someone there. So I was sent along to Lords. And as you say, fielded, fielded for Mike Hendrick. Yeah. I can remember going home that night again on the train or bus or whatever. Because I fielded in front of the mound stand for quite some time with all the drums and bells and cans and whistles. And then I could... And I could hear it in my head the whole way home. It was like just a buzz of noise. It was it was incredible, uh, you know. And so it's you know it's unfortunate, but that doesn't happen quite so much nowadays. With the, you don't get such noisy crowds for the West Indies matches now as you as you used to back then. You're obviously still in the selectors' thoughts because come a one-day international series at the end of the summer or the back end of the summer against Australia, you got picked for that. Yeah. I, you know, I was I was there or thereabouts, <laughs> talking about being in the selectors' thoughts, but missing out on the West Indies tour that year. I, I used to host tours for ITC, so I was in the Adelaide Hilton, '98 possibly or 2002, one or the other, and um, I was with a group of journalists um, and talking, and there was some of the conversation got around to um, sort of strange one-off selections and the wrong Peter Taylor getting picked by Australia, that that story. And and one of the guys said to me, well, you know all about that. Well, that kind of, and I said, well, what, what do you mean? Well, you, come on, you, you know, West Indies, 80, 1980 or, or And um, 
So I said, I had no idea. And he said, well, surely you must have heard that chairman selectors at that stage turned up just to wish the guys good luck and pointed out and said, who's that? He said, that's Butcher. He said, well, that's not the Butcher I picked. I can't remember who it was, one of the national papers. He said, and three or four of them said, yeah, yeah, that's exactly what happened. And I'd never heard the story, but it's a good story, but whether whether it is true, but they swore it was the case. Well, you actually lost. You actually lost your place in the One Day International side, having played first match of the series at the yeah, Oval. So Roland came in for the second te- second match. Yeah, to Roland. So I've got nothing against Roland. He's a good lad. I liked him. In fact, I told him that story when I when I went there with Zimbabwe. When I went to Barbados with Zimbabwe, we had lunch together. He he enjoyed that story. It's an incredible thing when you think about it. You you actually played one test and one One Day International, mm. and both of them at your home ground. The funny thing is, you probably got picked for that One Day International off the back of a first class performance. You got runs against Dennis Lilly, Jeff Thompson, and and, and Jeff Dimmock in a first class match uh, for um, Surrey against the Australians. Yeah, they they were over for the centenary. Yeah, got eighty odd, didn't they? Yeah, quite quite enjoyed that. You get picked for that one-day international, and you're batting at three. So you're you're sitting there with your pads on, while uh, Jeff Boycott and uh, and Graham Gooch they added 108 for the first wicket. Uh, were you a good watcher in that in that situation? There is that sense you get. It's a bit after the Lord Mayor show, and you walk out of it, and that. So you're sort of you're, you're on debut. It's a bit nervous, and you've got to try and get yourself in and score and keep keep up with the rate as quickly as you possibly can. You haven't really got time to worry about feeling your way into it. I was looking at the runs per you know ball and, and obviously I was trying to feel I was feeling my way into it. I felt I was trying to be positive. Uh, again, sort of got in, got out. And again, not enough to keep your place, but um, that's life. And at the end of that summer... Uh, you played in the you played in the Gillette Cup final against uh, Middlesex at Lords. Uh, didn't get big runs in that match. In those days, of course, people nowadays wouldn't necessarily realise, but there was a lot of store placed on performances in that uh, showcase final towards the touring party for the winter, wasn't there? It, it did appear that way. Yeah, quite a lot of people who did well in um, in, in that game got on the tour party. In fact, I can remember. Dennis Compton after the we beat Warwickshire in 82 and I got 80 odd not out in that and in the dressing room afterwards Dennis Compton came came in and said you know really you played really well he said you know good off the back foot be great we were going to Australia again I think and I'm going to try and get you on the tour I'm going to write you on the tour Uh, that didn't happen (laughs) so I'm not blaming him but doesn't always follow that if you get uh, get runs in that uh, the last game that you get picked. But again, I, pr- I think over the course of the summer, the whole summer, I probably didn't deserve it. For that West Indies tour, there was going to be a bombardment of quick bowlers. So your best players of quick bowling are probably the, the people to look at. I know Mike Brilly had said that he, he thought I was in the top three of, of batsmen against quick bowlers. So, you know, with all that, having scored so many runs. That's why I was so disappointed about being overlooked for that one, and much more so than Australia. Were you worth a punt in those years, 82 to 84, 
when <laughs> England had obviously lost, they'd lost Boycott, they'd lost Gooch on the Rebel Tours. Didn't you do enough to, um, to think, give the selectors? I think uh, they've always been worth a punt. But if I'm honest with myself, I'd say that, say over the course of a summer, two, three years after, I might get six or seven hundred runs in August, but didn't get many more before that or, or whatever. So although I felt as if I was, as you say, good enough worth a punt, I was disappointed in myself that I couldn't, for some reason, I don't know why, just become more consistent so that I'd score more runs over the whole of the summer and therefore a bigger total, in, you know, more runs in total. And then I you know, probably would have deserved to be picked uh, rather than it being a punt that would have been a stone cold certainty and when when did you actually realize that you weren't going to play for england again i think probably by 85 maybe maybe before maybe the year before 84 well around about that time and how, how easy or how difficult was it to to reconcile yourself mentally with that pinnacle of a player's career you've still got your day job to do though as well yeah Again, hindsight's a wonderful thing. I probably should have left the ovals before I did because I did feel as if that made a big difference to me, going to Glamorgan. Although probably <laughs> Glamorgan might not have been my f- first choice. It was in. It turned out to be a very good choice because I, I enjoyed my time there and I, I played as consistently well as I'd done since 1980, probably. A lot of it was to do with the fact that I genuinely felt that I was take aside the overseas player. I genuinely felt I was the best player. Whereas at the Oval, probably we always felt there were quite a lot of us, I would say. We were probably guilty of the same thing, that we, we knew that we had quite a lot, we had a lot of talented players and possibly subconsciously didn't individually take responsibility enough. You know, there was always someone else. So uh, we could, I'll play my way, you play your way. Sometimes it'll be superb. Other times it'll be a very entertaining car crash. But I genuinely think that the responsibility of being the best player in my head, and then not long after being there, taking over the captaincy, sort of, I think, brought out the best in me as, as a batsman. There was one occasion when Mickey had become manager, I got a phone call. We, I was at the Oval. Glamorgan were playing at the Oval and Mickey phone. We were in the nets and I got a call. So I had to run all the way in again. No mobiles. So I run back over the dressing room and I'm thinking, who's broken a finger? I said, don't tell me. You know, you know, I, I let myself think, but he was phoning me about Steve Watkins. So, <laughs> so uh, but I was wondering, just briefly, because I was playing extremely well. Scoring lots of runs. Well, you must. Uh-huh. You must have but, thought actually in in those years, nineteen eighty eight and nineteen eighty nine, when there was such a churn of uh, of batting talent uh, against first the West Indies and then Australia, and you were scoring so many runs, uh, you must have thought, well, surely they'll come to me at some stage because England picked over thirty players in in both yeah, those summers. I think. Uh, well, to be honest, that was really the only time when I thought that there might there was an opportunity. That's not to say that I didn't think that I should have been uh, looked at. I mean, I, you know, I said I was 34, 35 at that stage. But, yeah, as you say, there were so many players given opportunities and not taking them. I mean, it was to a degree, it, it was the same throughout my career because there was, you know, there was, you know, there were three or four players that sort of kept sort of going round and round with people and not necessarily settling on, on anyone. It, it did go on for quite some time. Did you ever allow yourself 
to look at some of those players being picked ahead of you and feel, well, if not anger, then frustration, thinking, do you know what? I'm a better player than them, and, and yet they're getting an opportunity and I'm not. <laughs> yeah, I'd, I'd be lying if I said no to that. I'm not going to tell you which ones, but I'm going to... But say... <laughs> There's plenty to choose from from that era, yeah. <laughs> actually. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, but I, I look... You'd be less than human if you didn't look at and then think, wow, how come he's getting you know. But fortunately, I can look back and laugh about it now. I've, I've managed to let it go. Your first class career was 22,000 runs. I mean, how do you reflect on that career? Are you happy you got the most out of yourself? I would say no. I'm not talking about talent here, ability just a mental aspect of things. I would say that mentally I'm much more in a sort of David Gower cavalier camp than Jeff Boycott's roundhead or Graham Gucci's roundhead. Gucci was always amazing in how he could get 300 and 100 and then go and play for Essex the next day and get another 100, you know, whereas Gower found that very difficult. I I would have managed my mentality and my ability better if I'd played fewer innings. I reckon I could have played a third fewer innings and scored as many runs. Because there were definitely times during a period where, you know, you might be getting 30-odd innings a year when I'd rather have been anywhere else than walking out to bat. Sometimes I score runs in, in, in those times because you just just play and not really focused but you just get away with it because you can play but there were other times when I, I, I just I couldn't summon the will and I know that sounds unprofessional and it does to me as I say it and as I think it but no one enjoys going to work every day do they well very few people you know it's what you do it's that sometimes it's the relentlessness of it in order to get through a county season. You have to manage your energy levels so much that the only way you can get through it is on a level that's a bit lower than the peak required for a test match. And the more you do that, the harder it is to get out of that peak because that's what your body and mentality is used to. Unless you're, you know, really cute mentally and you understand that and you know that. And and I can only assume that John Snow must have worked that out very early on in his career because he very rarely seemed to be the same bowler for Sussex that he was for England. Whereas other bowlers, I think, you know, sort of had that plateau and found impossible to get out of it when they needed to peak for a test match. Whereas nowadays, they don't play so much. So basically, all they do now is peak for test matches. That's their life, isn't it? You know, the quicker bowlers, England's quick bowlers now. And I think the same thing applies to batting. It's just there's a level. Some people are better at getting out of that level or can always be on at a higher level than others. And I think that that was probably my issue, I would say. I think I had enough talent for for long enough periods at the right times, maybe couldn't get the mentality right until the end, till I went to Glamorgan. Were those Glamorgan years your best years as a as I a reckon they were. You know, yeah, apart from, say, the 79-80, I think I was good then. 
I did that. I had some injury problems, which made things a bit difficult. But I think more than that, it was that issue that I couldn't always get that the mentality right. Maybe I got a bit stale at the Oval. And then it was certainly the responsibility, I think, brought the best out of me, Andrew Morgan, as what I thought best player. And, and then captain. Well, there was the irony. You, you, you're talking about getting stale at the Oval because, of course, your last season at the Oval was your least productive one. And that was at a time when, uh, I think, um, alongside Graham Gooch, England tried, I think it was five openers in six test matches that particular mm-hmm. summer of 1986. So on the one hand, obviously, you weren't producing the runs to, to justify a, a, an opportunity. But on the other hand, that must have been frustrating as well to see something like that going on. Yeah, I think probably by that time I'd, I'd sort of resigned myself to the fact that I wasn't going to play for England again. And it was more to do with, I felt that I should be captain of the Surrey side. And I didn't think that we were being particularly well captain. So, And I felt that the club kept making poor decisions on in that area. I think the decision came down to the fact that because I felt that way, that they weren't going to give me the captaincy, so there was no point in giving me another contract. So as it turned out, that worked out really well because I, I did enjoy the last six seasons of my career. When you And when you look back now, are you bitter for playing just one test match or are you grateful for getting the opportunity? I, I can't say I'm bitter. I think, as I explained to you before, it, it, it's just a question of... I'd like to know if I was good enough to do it over a period of time, whether I could have become a regular and successful test player. It's not bitter because apart from one occasion, as I said, the West Indies tour 1980, I could easily understand the reasons why the selectors wouldn't pick me. Isn't cricket a funny game in one sense, though, in that you were picked for your one and only test match when you were 26 years of age? and were you the finished article at that point in time? How, how many other jobs do people do where they get the opportunity to either grow into the job or they get uh, they get the opportunity to do a job when when they fully matured? Uh, I mean, were you the finished article at twenty six? No, I became a better player with, without a doubt. Seventy four, I first opened for Surrey, so I'd, I'd never opened anywhere in, before. I just put my hand up because Surrey was struggling. And I, I started in the Surrey side, as you'll, you'll, you'll know, as a sort of all-rounder batting 7-8. Now, I knew that I wasn't going to be a good enough bowler to sustain a, a long career, so, and, and that I was a, a better batsman. So I put my hand up to open. I was, what, 20 then. So I'd done it for quite a, a, a long period of time. You know, if I, if I think... Coaching has developed a hell of a lot since then. I mean, you didn't really get much technical help at all. You had a lot of people telling who were able to diagnose what you're doing wrong, but very few who would give you any constructive advice as to how to put it right. And, of course, very little recourse to video. So you couldn't actually see and and work out yourself what it was, if anything. And in fact, I can remember going down to Bristol and Graham Wiltshire, who was on the coaching staff there, was the first person who came up and showed me some video and um, just pointed out a couple of things and, and, and whatever. And you, you can get overly technical about it and, and you can go too far with it. 
but there's no doubt that if you can if you if you have the ability to be able to watch yourself and have someone just say right maybe if you try if you do this do that this is it makes a difference and i and i think your um your development can be quicker i can remember talking to tom graveney and after he'd retired and i i think i was i think i was captain of glamorgan then talking about matthew maynard and saying you know about how to manage innings because you know matt came in great shot player and but wasn't good to begin with, like a lot of youngsters at managing an innings. He'd just get on a roll and go four, 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 and wouldn't know when to stop until he got out. But I can remember talking to Tom Graveney, who said that he reckoned it took him about seven years to learn how to manage a run chase. And that's quite a long time for people who are among the sort of greats of the English game. And it makes you think, you know, that, you know, sometimes... You do expect things to happen very quickly, and people learn things very quickly, but sometimes it does take take a while. Did your treatment at the hands of the selectors or your failure to 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 get another cap did that actually end up affecting the way you you coached and captained you've coached at international level uh, for Zimbabwe but uh, also captaining at, at county level was that a factor in the way you handled players? I don't know whether it was that so much. I, I I would probably describe myself as a sort of nurturing coach. I mean, I, I'm quite, well, people think that I'm quite technical, and yes, I, I can be, but I think I'm first and foremost, if I'm coaching or if I'm captaining a side, I think if you talk to somebody like Robert Croft or... Tony Cotty, Adrian Dale, the youngsters who came into the Glamorgan side, I think they would tell you that I, I, I was a sort of nurturing. I gave them space and, 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 and confidence to, to learn and, and develop. And, and, and I think with, with that kind of thing in mind, you know, that it takes a bit of time. They will develop, but you've got to give them the opportunity. You can't, after two failures you can't start putting pressure on people if you think they're good if you know you've got to give them give them that opportunity and i think that probably too often even in the england setup even up to the to the 90s you know as you said you know the chopping and changing and not settling on who was the right one and give them an opportunity before moving on at least now i mean you can think now you know sometimes you you might think now that they almost can go too far with it, you know, and you're thinking somebody like Joe Denley, you know, who, who came in again late and then was given lots of opportunity and, and in the face of some quite stern criticism from outside, uh, but stuck with it, whether you agree with that or not, but at least at least it's fairer to the player and the other players will know where they stand. And I think that's part of the thing is having some some sort of confidence in a structure that players can walk into and, and feel as if they're, they're going to be given an opportunity to show what they can do. In that context, do you wish you'd, do you wish you'd played in the modern era? I, I think I would have had more opportunity, yeah. And my bank balance would be a hell of a lot better, for sure. <laughs> On the other side of the coin, look at it this way. You're one of only two players, Mark Benson is the other, 
to have played one test and one <laughs> one-day international for England. How does that sit with you? It's a good after-dinner topic, I, I guess. It's, well, yes, I, I do use it. I, you know, I have a bit of a spiel around the, the, the debut test match. And obviously, boycott stories are always good. People always enjoy boycott stories, uh, even though mine are, mine are actually quite favourable for him. Do you ever joke with your son, Mark, about the fact that you've played one uh, more one-day international than him? Yes, I saw his debut at Edgbaston, so and then I was able to get a day off to to see the Saturday at Lords for the second test of that series. It did rain, so I sort of went. I got underneath the balcony and got him to come out, and we'd arranged I got to go back to the hotel to have a quick drink before I went home. And um, the first thing he said when he sat down was, "I've done you," because <laughs> that was his second test. <laughs> And I couldn't yet, I couldn't at that stage say we weren't to know that he was never going to play an ODI. But I certainly did let him know when it, when, uh, when his England career came to an end. Where are your England caps and uh, and jumpers now? They're in a, a bag. In, we've got, I've got a, an outhouse and so they're, they're in a bag outside. You've got, of course, of course, you've got a one-day international jumper as well, because in those days yeah. it, there, there was a different, a different motif on the front of the jumper, wasn't it? Yeah, they're they're outside. And were you given a blazer? Yeah, we did. I'm sure we did have a blazer. I don't, I don't, I'm not sure that I've still got the blazer. It would go nowhere near fitting me now, anyway. So it wouldn't. And what about your caps? Because of course, again, in in those days, England's one-day cap was a different one from the Test cap. Yeah. I haven't seen the one-day cap for a while. I don't know. I've, I've moved so many times, things tend to go missing. Yeah, but again, test the test cap is out in the, with the with the sweaters and stuff. As I say, I'm not I'm not a great one for mementos. I've got a picture of Mark in a sort of office I have with, uh, after the heading league 173. I've got uh, from the Oval, you know that series where the, the, the play a couple of can't remember who it is running through the crowd. Yes, Com- won, Com- Compton and Edrich running off after uh, after winning in fifty three. Yeah. yeah, my wife's mum and dad are in are in that crowd, and um, we can, you can pick them out in the crowd. So we, we sort of they're both they're both dead now, but we we sort of got that picture frame for them. That's that's one of only two. That I have up. I don't really have much else. Well, I don't have much else. Alan Butcher, thank you very much indeed. It's been an absolute pleasure to speak with you. you you've played for England. You've uh, you've got a Test cap, and you always will have. And it's something you should be immensely proud of. Thank you very much indeed for joining thank us. Thank you. Cheers, Brian. Thank you. Enjoy the chat. A wonderfully honest assessment of his solitary Test and his career there from Alan. It was fascinating to hear how different the levels of communication were back then between players and those in charge of the team, especially in this case over whether Alan was playing in the test and where he was going to be batting. The thought of him travelling to the Oval on the bus for the pinnacle of his career is something that sticks in my mind, as does the idea of him sitting in his hotel room eating KFC all alone during the test. And Alan's story about spending the test's rest day at the accident and emergency department of his local hospital is another remarkable aspect of his story. 
I saw a lot of Alan batting during the latter stages of his career when he went to Glamorgan and he was a terrific player of quick bowling. I remember especially one innings he played against Derbyshire including Michael Holding and Devon Malcolm in 1987 when he was forced to retire hurt after being struck on the arm only to return and score an unbeaten 113. He really was in prime form in those Glamorgan years, in his mid to late 30s, was named one of Wisden's Cricketers of the Year in 1991, and, as I put it in the interview, I'm sure he would have been worth a punt during the merry-go-round of England's batsmen selected in 1988 and 1989, as first the West Indies and then Australia's bowlers ran amok during those summers. So, another great story told, and there's plenty more where that came from here on One Test Wonders. So please subscribe, like, and let others know all about this podcast if you can. If you've got any feedback or comments, you can email murgersb at gmail.com. That's M-U-R-G-E-R-S-B at gmail.com. Until next time, this is Brian Murgatroyd. Thanks very much for listening. <laughs>